This podcast is classified MA15 plus and is not suitable for listeners under the age of 15. It contains strong adult themes and violence. He didn't come home. The next morning they said a body had been found person had been bashed to death on South Terrace and the description fitted him with what he'd had on when he left home. So I went over there and they took one look at the photo and they said, yeah, that's John. From 1979 to 1983, five young men and teenage boys were drugged, sexually abused, tortured and killed. Their murders are widely believed to have been committed by a close-knit circle of prominent Adelaide men, a group that soon became known as The Family. Four of the five murders remain unsolved, but one man was convicted for one of the murders. His name is Bevan Spencer von Einem. You might remember Bevan von Einem from an earlier episode. He was the driver who picked up and injured Roger James from the side of the road after James had been thrown into the river, allegedly by members of the South Australian Vice Squad, on the night that Dr George Duncan was murdered. Eleven years on from that night, in 1983, Bevan von Einem abducted Richard Kelvin, the 15-year-old son of longtime Adelaide Channel 9 newsreader Rob Kelvin. The teenager's body was found almost two months later, but examination revealed he'd been tortured for five weeks before his death. Von Einem was arrested, got life, and remains in prison. The family murders sent shockwaves through Adelaide and had ramifications for the gay community. The events focused attention on the sort of things that went bump and grind in the night and threw up rumours about a group of pedophiles in high places. And so the backlash began. A 1992 poll in the Bulletin revealed South Australia, with its proud history of social progressiveness, was in fact the least tolerant towards homosexuals of all Australian states. I formed the impression the gay community in Adelaide was afraid the general public would brand them as sadistic pedophiles, and so have been making themselves as small a target as possible ever since. But there was only so much they could take. As we got into the late 80s and then into the 90s, there were definitely bashes in cars going around to the beats. And the police seemed to be more interested in chasing homosexuals than the bashes in cars. Gay rights activist Ian Purcell. There were sort of vigilantes, if you like, from the gay community who would collect number plates and hand them in to the police. There was a feeling, though, that this information wasn't being acted upon. We said sooner or later, you know, somebody's going to be murdered and this is, this is what happened. David Saint was known as John to friends and family. He was what you'd call an ordinary guy. The 41-year-old had spent most of his working life in the freezer of a chicken processor. He'd bought three houses, done them up, sold them, and was doing well enough out of it to be just about unshackled from the banks. 
He'd moved back in with his mum for a couple of months while his next place was under construction. So John was staying at mum's. This is Helen, David's sister. Remember, she calls him John. He didn't come home. She had the radio on. The next morning they said a body had been found. A person had been bashed to death on South Terrace. The description fitted him with what he'd had on when he left home. And of course she panicked. So I went over there and they took one look at the photo and they said, yeah, that's John. South Terrace is the street that separates Adelaide's South Parklands from the CBD. David stumbled across this busy road on the night of April 16, 1991 and collapsed into some bushes on the city side, where a passerby found him bashed, covered in blood. An ambulance arrived. The paramedics tried desperately to save him, but David didn't make it. From day one, police said publicly that the motive for the murder of David Saint was robbery. Activist Ian Purcell says this explanation did not sit well with the gay community. Immediately following the David Saint murder, we, uh, in reading the media reports from police, it became obvious to us that they were treating it as a burglary gone wrong. Uh, nothing about the fact that that area of the South Parklands was a well-known beat or that perhaps David Saint, who apparently was well-known to certain people, uh, was in fact homosexual. So we um, took this up with um, Clunder, the minister, and said, well, you know, we warned you this was going to happen. Kenton Penley, spokesman for Lesbian and Gay Community Action, told the media at the time that the area was notorious for gay bashings, and that the most common assaults were well-planned, gangs jumping out of cars and dragging victims off to be kicked, bashed and left bleeding in the darkness. Here's Ian Purcell again. It's well known that if you're going to do the beats, you do not take your wallet with you. So the fact that there, his wallet was missing wasn't an indication that he may well have been robbed but um, the fact that he was just being sensible um, in not allowing someone to bash him and steal his wallet and find out all his personal information. We had a lot of support from general uh, community organisations as well around this issue. And I think collectively it put a fair bit of pressure on the police because then they set up a van <laughs> at the beach to say, no questions asked, but um, if you saw anything, come, come into our van and tell us about it. Yeah. Well, of course, the relationship between the police and the community at the time was such that I can't imagine anybody wanting to go into the van and have a chat with the police, so that, that was ineffective and as we know that the case still has not been solved. The gay community embraced the memory of David Saint and defended him, rallying against police. But this left David's siblings with a problem. Their brother had come out to them a few years earlier, but not to their mother. They decided to tell her so she would hear it from them before reading it in the paper. and. There was something else. 
I'll never forget. Like having to sit down with her and saying, look, John was gay, and also that is HIV positive. So it was terrible yeah. for her. She was just so shocked about everything and, you know. But one thing she did used to say was in some ways she hoped that they didn't find who'd done it. She said, because I don't think I could go through it all again. The family closed ranks and never spoke to the media about David's death until now. Helen wants everyone to know that there was more to her brother than the guy who got killed cruising in the shadows. Never, ever was ever in any trouble with the law or anything like that. Good, honest, law-abiding citizen. David loved holidaying with the family. He took his parents to the Melbourne Cup when they were too old for their regular coach trip. He often dropped in on Helen for a coffee. And when she was in hospital having her seventh child, David babysat her kids at night and even went out and bought a station wagon just so he could ferry them to hospital for visiting. That's the David she once remembered. After the initial visit from police, the day after David's death, Helen felt there wasn't much follow-up. And then they came back the next day, and that was it. It was just that they never, never came back. Never, didn't hear any more from it. There was no inquest, inquiries surrounding David's death fizzled out, and his police file was sent to storage. The killers had got away with it. A murder in your family is very hard to deal with, but to have no follow-up, no offer of any help, no offer of any support, no offer of anything, was just as hard to deal with as the murder itself. David was murdered in 1991. The Saint family didn't hear from the police again until recently, when a detective from the new cold case unit rang Helen's brother. He asked if he could use a photo of David on a deck of playing cards that was to be distributed to prisons. The deck of cards featured the faces of 52 unsolved murder victims. David was the nine of spades. The hope was that the pictures might get the chatter going in prison and bring some new information to the surface. So for 20 years there was no, there was no reward, no nothing. And that was always hard to deal with because you think, well, why? Why, why, why? But we'll never know why. We were never given any answers or any, anything. I contacted the South Australian police but couldn't get a member of the force to sit down and talk with me about David's murder or any of the cases I've investigated in this series. Instead, I was asked to put my questions in writing to the media department. I asked why police had said robbery was the motive for David Saint's murder. Their answer? Quote, The motive for his murder remains unclear, with no evidence to suggest that it was robbery. Close quote. This confused me. Why, on the day after the murder, did they tell the media that it was? Why would police obscure the fact that this was almost certainly a hate crime? It brought to mind something a PhD student, Thomas Poborezny Lynch, had said to me about how the media and courts often dealt with these crimes. Thomas had studied the gay press of the 1970s, looking for evidence of bashings and murders, 
and found cases that the gay community clearly treated as hate crimes. But when he'd follow them up in the mainstream media and the court documents, he'd find that the victim's homosexuality had been left out. It's actually something which is so well known to police that if some, you know, goods, a wallet or a car, some property was taken, they actually think, well, that's easier to classify, that's robbery, we know about that. Criminologist Professor Stephen Thompson studied gay murders in New South Wales in the 1980s and 90s. He doesn't want to be too dismissive of police who focus on the robbery gone wrong aspect of a crime. It's much harder to try and actually understand how levels of bias and hatred towards minority group victims come to be part of these scenarios as well. Mm. So it's something new to them and they actually have to think about it in a different sort of way uh, to actually see, see the connections. But we've had, you know, in Sydney and New South Wales, we've had this history of gay hate killings where people have been viciously attacked, brutally killed, and also they've been victims of robbery. Um, and certainly if you, you... You just can't explain the level of violence and the level of targeting with these sorts of victims if you think that the motive was a, a simple robbery for what is very often only a very small amount of money mm. or fairly worthless property. David John Saint's murder was portrayed as a robbery gone wrong, not gay hate. And this is just one example I came across of how a potential gay hate murder can become not a gay hate murder. Another way is to get a good lawyer. In the next and final episode of True Stories, we're not going back to the 70s, 80s or 90s as we've done in previous episodes, but back just five years to 2011, to the brutal murder of Andrew Negre, a case which continues to bounce around the legal system today. His case is an example of how a particular legal defence can still be used in both South Australia and Queensland as a partial defence for a violent attack against a gay person, that a gay come-on can be enough to justify a homicidal rage. True Stories Season 3 is inspired by Deepwater, SBS's first cross-platform network event. Head to sbs.com.au forward slash true stories for more details. These stories are adapted from Mark Whitaker's long-read investigation into a series of Adelaide gay hate murders, which will be published online at the end of the season. True Stories is an SBS online production. Told by Mark Whitaker. Music and sound by Martin Peralta. Produced by Gina McEwen. Illustrations by Jeremy Lord and commissioned by Kylie Bolton and Ben Napastek. <laughs>